Hey, you're gonna love this interview with David Tobin. He is a mergers and acquisitions advisor focusing on the marketing and communications space. He has helped oversee more than 100 transactions, has sold multiple companies himself, and in this conversation, we discuss in great detail how these transactions occur, who the important parties are, what the most important terms are as a part of these deals, and a whole lot more. Here is my conversation with David Tobin. David, thanks for coming on. I'm excited to be talking with you. Aaron, thanks for having me. So I want to start off with just a definition of Tobin Left because, uh, funny story, one of the very first interviews that I did, I interviewed a venture capitalist, and candidly at the time, I had no idea what a venture capitalist was. So I have a lot of empathy for folks that when it comes to different types of business deal making, whether it be a private equity, a venture capitalist, a public equity investor, so on and so forth, there's so many different roles that can feel confusing and overwhelming. So let's just start with a really simple, clear picture of the role that you and your firm play when someone wants to buy or sell a business. We are the intermediary. We are M&A advisors. We try to position ourselves between, on one end, you have investment bankers handling the mega transactions, primarily out of New York, or Chicago. On the opposite end would be business brokers. There's a void, a vacuum, blankness in the middle that we try to fill, which is M&A advisory work for middle market and smaller market companies. And is that different than, say, like my real estate agent who, who represents me when I buy or sell a house and not the opposite party most of the time? Like usually aligned with one side or the other? Or are you kind of more the like negotiator between two parties? No, we're representing one party. In most cases, it's we're sell-side representatives. Okay. Our client would be that business owner that wants to sell his or her company. And the the value, I mean, there's probably a lot of value that, that comes from that relationship, but one of the core things is, you know, someone only buys or sells a business a couple times in their life if, if they're lucky enough to be able to build that type of enterprise value. And uh, concern and insecurity or just a risk factor might be the your counterparty could be someone who buys and sells multiple times a year and have a lot more savvy as it pertains to you know the, the subtle details of a deal, the terms, all these other types of factors. It's a good point, and your observations are right. Sophisticated buyers, either they do it themselves or they have advisors that are continuously assessing deals, putting offers forth. An owner gets to sell his or her company. Every company we build, it sounds like a cliche, one time. Yeah. And the importance of it, the magnitude is, it, it's so important to get it right. And so companies tend to be born from a, a experienced personal pain or difficulty or struggle. So how did you recognize the need for this type of service? I grew up in an advertising and marketing family. I started marketing and advertising related companies right out of college. I had an agency that I started in the 90s. Our niche or specialty was working with financial advisors who wanted to be in front of business owners on a favorable basis. My team and I, we came up with the idea, the best door opener hook positioning statement would be to position our clients as specialists in exit planning, succession planning, and it worked. That Those topics were of great interest to business owners. So we actually built a company around concepts like exit planning, succession planning. I sold that company. I was away from the industry for a few years, and I couldn't help myself, Aaron. I'd meet a business owner, and I'd say to them, what's your exit plan? And they wanted to talk about it. 
So is that experience owning a Marcom agency in the exit planning space that led me to where I am today. So that's an interesting nuance because it sounds more like you, you recognized the significance, you recognized the scope of the, the problem more so than when you sold your company that was marketing on behalf, that was some sort of problem. Because you probably had all these advisors as clients that they were able to give you really good advice when it occurred. That's true. What I've come to appreciate, it's the magnitude, the importance of exit planning, the advisors, the thought process, the research, all that's involved to put together a successful exit liquidity event while you're trying to run a business. Yeah, it's a whole other job. It is. It is. It certainly can be. So what, is the, what does the process look like when someone's coming to you? Have they kind of already made the decision to sell? Are they like kicking tires? Like what, is, what does that look like? It really covers a spectrum. Some owners, they're very clear. They believe their company is at the right stage to sell. They're looking for the right advisor just to represent them. Others are exploring the exit planning process. They've either heard from friends or others that it's a hot market or companies are selling for a high multiple. They want to get a sense of what is their company really worth. And they're trying to determine, do I have something that's sellable? And what will that mean in dollars? And is there any sort of barometer that when, when you're looking at the client coming in, you're like, yeah, like we can or can't help you or how you even disqualify as part of the process? We try very hard to be as realistic as we can in terms of the enterprise value of that company to educate potential clients, potential sellers, what is their company worth? What's the process like? Most people believe their homes are worth more than they actually are. Yeah. Translate that to their businesses. It really gets the magnitude. I mean, it's people, because it, you have to be careful because people will talk to friends or others and they'll hear this company sold for 10 times earnings or 10 times EBITDA or 15 times. And their company may be very different. A service firm trades at a very different multiple, different valuation ranges than a technology company or a SaaS company. So many times people's perceptions are not what the market will bear. So a good starting point for us, it's to perform what we call a market valuation analysis. Help that owner appreciate what is his or her company worth with, for different types of buyers, different types of transactions. And then take that information and say, if you do sell, if there's a transaction, a liquidity event, will you have enough money to accomplish what's next? whether what's next is a new venture, retirement, some kind of personal assets. And then reality typically sets in. And many times there is a chasm between the, the realities of what the market will pay and the expectations. And how do you emotionally coach people through those types of scenarios? Sometimes we need a leather couch and take copays. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's really just spending time in, in education. It's such an important process that many of our client engagements where they actually have us sell the companies will start a year to three years in advance. There might be some consulting along the way, but it's really spending time for us to share what we are seeing and experiencing in the marketplace, helping those owners get comfortable with, are they ready? Is their company ready? It's both the personal and the business side. And I would say on average, people will seriously think about selling typically a year in advance, I mean, rarely will somebody say, I've just decided that I want to sell. 
and we need to go right now or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's usually if it's they're reacting to a problem. Yeah, that's almost like a red flag. Like, oh, what, what what's going on here that you need to like sell so quickly? That's almost like put some flags up. And that's a good point. Any red flags, they always come out. Any weaknesses during the process, whether it's when you're trying to seek offers or doing the, their due diligence. So if you want to approach it from a position of strength, hopefully you're not reacting or doing it for the wrong reasons. And so another value I have to imagine is that you at least have legibility into what is probably a somewhat fractured, opaque marketplace, right? Like if I, you know, for lack of a oversimplification, if I want to sell my house, there's Zillow and Redfin and the NM, the MLS and all this other stuff that makes the market as kind of legible as, as possible, at least in modern times. But the market of buyers for specifically where you focus marketing and communications agencies is not particularly legible to most people. So how do you help a seller negotiate that? Well, finding the right buyers in today's market between technology, our resources, firms like ours have resources. So we have a pretty extensive database. You also would have a team that, depending upon the type of company, if you were selling it, your offering, who you appeal to, we would do research to find the likely types of buyers, typically strategics that are similar or companies that could use your assets, your resources to supplement what they're doing. So there are plenty of places to look for the right types of buyers. Work with the client to really define what are the characteristics of likely buyers? I mean, certainly they need the resources, they need to be the size depending upon your size to be able to fund a transaction. But it goes beyond that. I mean, everybody wants to think the culture's aligned, the values align, there's a shared vision. That, in order to accomplish that, you have to talk to a number of prospective buyers. The first time my, my wife and I bought a house, I think we looked at like over 40 properties. I'm sure my real estate agent was like completely exhausted <laughs> by it, but we had just never done it before. And you're like, I don't even know like what a good house or what, like what a good thing for this amount of money is. And it, it, it feels like it would be even more daunting if it's your business that you're selling this thing that you've kind of poured your, as you've said, blood, sweat and tears into it. It's an emotional thing way more than it's going to be a rational thing, even for the most rational actor. Without a doubt. And what you're highlighting on is the importance of realizing it is a journey, it is a process. To find the right buyer, economics, fit culture, you've got to spend time with these potential suitors. And that doesn't happen over one or two Zoom meetings. Yeah. So typically the process, it's the M&A advisor group, the business broker, the investment banker, they'll, the part of their job is to qualify, weed through, be selective on who you meet with if you were the seller narrow it down to interested parties. Not necessarily, if you look at the M&A process, there's typically steps. If you back up from the closing, to get to the closing, you have to sign a letter of intent, which is typically an exclusive period with one buyer. To get to the letter of intent, many times, you would seek what's called an IOI, an indication of interest or term sheets from multiple, or letters of intent from multiple suitors. That time period is really the period when we encourage our clients to spend time to really get to know those buyers. Because in most situations, if somebody's selling a service-related firm, a technology company, the sellers have to stay with the acquiring company for a number of years. Many times a percentage of the proceeds are tied to future performance. How long is the average earnout for the space? On average, three years. Okay. I mean, they can go from one year to five years. If 
somebody wants the confidence that the business will transfer, that the business will continue and sustain, they're going to want that assurity typically for longer than 12 months. On the flip side of it, if the earnout's too long, the seller's going to say, if I'm going to be subject to benchmarks for a long period, I might as well just keep the company. Yeah. So it's finding that right balance depending upon who the buyer is. And, so. and, and to what degree, because you, you can see it be glamorized, you know, these days it's succession, but there's been all these kind of shows where it's yeah. about deal making and wheeling and dealing and last minute maneuvers and retrading and all this other stuff. Like, to what degree is that, and obviously there's gonna be glamorization yeah. for media, but to what degree is that a part of the equation versus maybe just kind of like a pace and a tone that doesn't really align, you know, like I have friends who are lawyers and they say, you know, I watch that show and I just, my skin crawls because it's not based on reality in any way, shape or form. Well, fortunately, you're not going to be up against Logan Roy from Succession Planning. Thankfully. <laughs> the hard negotiations is an over-exaggeration. And if you can deal with enough qualified buyers, you're putting forth the information that they need. If you're a realistic seller in terms of what your business is worth and the economics of the deal, usually the, the selling price, the multiple, they'll, the market will dictate where that's falling. Where there is negotiations, but it's not like real heavy across the table, the terms in most situations, there's much more energy into the terms than the actual price. And some of those terms include, you touched on the earnout. What are the benchmarks? Are we going to measure top line or profitability? What period of time? The seller's balance sheet becomes a very important element of the negotiations. You'll, when anybody gets into an M&A deal, this concept of working capital, how much working capital, which is current assets minus current liabilities, does the seller need to leave behind? Many sellers believe, until they're educated about the process, they think, well, my balance sheet is mine. I've got receivables and cash. What's mine is mine. What's yours is mine, that saying goes. But as a buyer, if they're going to pay you a multiple of earnings, their expectation is you've got to leave some working capital. Otherwise, in addition to what they pay for the stream of earnings, they'll have to put money in to fund operations post-closing day one. So there's negotiations. It typically ends up around on average, two months of operating expenses in working capital, not cash. That could be receivables and so forth. So the terms, earnout period, employment agreements, non-compete agreements, I mean, that, that that's where you've got to spend some time and energy. And and at basically, like, what levels of, of annual revenue do you see real kind of, like, breakpoints in terms of the sophistication of the seller? Because, like, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm getting coaching right now massive increase in my understanding of just like what the balance sheet is, what it means, being able to read it with any sort of legibility. Granted, I'm only five years into it and, and have never run a business before. But, you know, I have to imagine there's a spectrum of the really sophisticated, maybe it's their second or third business, they've they've sold before, they still want, you know, the stewardship versus the person who's like, yeah, I mean, I sell, I like have clients, but I've never thought of the business as this asset before. I've thought of the business as my cash machine. Yeah, it's an interesting point you're raising, Aaron. So let, let's draw that to, we've all seen or read or talked about life cycles of a business, startup, growth, maturity, exit, and so forth. We've all started about that. One of our themes that we try to carry forward when appropriate, it's start with the end in mind. View 
your exit plan as a phase, but start it early. It doesn't, it doesn't compete. It actually complements the growth phase and so forth. But to your question, that once an owner has the confidence that they're past survival, you know, cash flow, they're usually pretty focused on growth. At that stage with growth, they start to get, they're typically approached by their strategics or private equity groups. They start to get inquiries and people can't help but to say, what would that look like if I sell? It's usually at that phase when they truly have a business, they know it's sustainable that they start thinking about monetizing. Whether that's a few years out, you can't help yourself because you're putting all this time and energy in. Everybody wants to think there's a payday on the back end, not just the money you can take out along the way. And in terms of when it's appropriate, so like, do you ever get approached by someone who's, you, you mentioned like maybe one to one year to 18 months out, but they're three plus years out and maybe they're in that growth stage and they're like, I just want to think about, I, I want to begin with the end in mind and think about that stage, even if it's not something that I feel is imminent. Like what, what, how do you engage them and what does that look like? Even if it's farther than three years out, we see value that if, back to what we were saying, start with the end, end game in mind. So many of our clients, we have a consulting arm to our group. So a couple of my partners, that's their passion and focus, helping clients increase their enterprise value for a future liquidity event. There's typically four to six key areas that will drive that future value that may need attention. Somebody's vision, their unique value proposition, that's certainly one of them. And that's a work in progress that's constantly changing. But when it's time to sell, for somebody to command top dollar, the higher end of whatever the multiple spectrum is, you need a vision that people can believe in. The buyers need to see vision because people will pay for growth. With growth is the ability to command the higher multiple. So you've got vision, unique value proposition would want, would be one, which ties to a growth strategy in their business development systems, processes, being able to demonstrate that that's a new business machine, however they accomplish that. Related to that, you've got to reduce, minimize the dependency on the selling shareholders. Because if the company is so overly dependent on them, the buyer is going to say, what happens if you sell me your company and then you're on to something else? So vision, growth phase, reducing dependency, the culture which ties into key people, developing incentives for the members of the leadership team to stay involved post-transactions. You may have heard of phantom stock plans or... I don't know what a phantom stock plan is. Yeah, they're, they're incentives to say to your leadership team members, you stay with me, I sell, you get a percentage of the sales. You stay with me, we're profitable, you can get a percentage of the profitability. They try to treat non-equity holders as equity through incentive comps. But buyers love that because that's an added, quote, golden handcuff reason why those key employees might stay involved. The, the other part, back to your question about planning in advance, relationships. It's such a key part. In many situations, a buyer is someone with whom that seller knows or they know of your company. If you're three to five years out, actually having a communications plan to say, as I see it today, who are the likely buyers? and make a conscious planned effort to make them aware of your company and what you're doing. So not, not that you want to sell, 
but really like taking all, I mean, it's, it's obvious if you're selling a business, but like basically that's really good sales, right? Like if I have this, you know, prospective client that I, maybe it'll take me 12 to 18 months to close, but if I have a consistent messaging campaign to them and an account-based approach, I have a much greater likelihood of landing them as a client. But you're saying take that, you know, externally of my, you know, revenue generating activities to my, you know, business sale activities on that type of time horizon to be on the radar of every prospective buyer when the time comes. Many of the key strategics, to your point, you're going to be busy on your own revenue. That's where your focus will be. Yeah. But if you know there's some strategics that you believe you could play a strategic part in their company or they're a large competitor, when you're at the trade shows or industry, you make a point to meet them. Yeah. If you have a content database marketing account-based management campaign, make sure those buyers are part of your distribution list that are getting your content. Yeah. Even if they're your competitors. So that's a planned effort to say, when the time is right, I want the my world, it's maybe a small world, to know about your company. And that's one of the advantages to starting early. The, the other part is your financial management. Getting your financials in order based on the way buyers like to look at them, gap compliant, understanding that most transactions are going to be priced based on a multiple of EBITDA, earnings before interest and taxes and so forth. But really understand what goes into that because there's adjustments. Knowing that's going to be the driver in the future, that should be a KPI, a benchmark that you and members of your leadership team are managing now towards what's our EBITDA, you know, whether it's month by month or quarter by quarter. So what I'm really curious to hear about, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly how much of these deals, you know, terms you can share necessarily, but is there like an, like an average kind of profile of the agency owner that sells a certain age demographic, a certain niche, a certain kind of quality or caliber that they have when they're, you know, accomplishing what is to many the pinnacle of actually selling their business for a handsome sum? It falls into a few groupings. You've got you know, certainly because of just demographics and age, you've got some owners that they've had their company for a number of years. They're at an age. Most people who run businesses aren't going to retire and buy themselves a gold watch and truly retire. But they're at a phase where they want to do something different or they want they don't want the stress of running the company. So you've got that owner that is looking for a lifestyle change. Then you've got others, which it's it's probably as large, if not a larger camp, They've had a good run. They're making money. It's that concept, let's take some chips off the table. Because owning a service firm, there's risk. You could be running high right now. You lose a couple big accounts or something changes. So we've got a number of clients that they will say, I'm making good money now. We're profitable. But the market is such, if somebody's going to pay me five, six, seven times earnings, and I can take that out on a tax-favored basis through capital gains, most likely have equity or rollover equity in the acquiring company, it becomes pretty attractive to have financial security. And then if you sell in that example, even if you're tied to a two to three year earn out or there's rollover equity, so you have incentives to stay for a few years, they're still young enough to say, I had a liquidity event. I built personal wealth. I'll be positioned with all this white space out there to do something else. Yeah. So we're seeing more and more of not the retirement as much as let's let's I want I don't want to use overused terms but take those chips off the table yeah 
and 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 position yourself with financial security. Because what's you know, one of the things that I've always I've struggled with for a long time, and Hannah and, and I have had many conversations about is the degree to which your like goalpost can kind of be warped by an internet headline or just what you're seeing when you when you're exposed to not just like the local Pittsburgh market or the local Western Pennsylvania market, but like everyone with an agency anywhere. Um, and there's these characters that are at least for the kind of younger generation, like at the vanguard of start your own agency, right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, we could say, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk or Amon Gadzi or some of these other characters who are accomplishing such crazy outcomes at relatively young ages. And that kind of normalizing, creating this pathway of like, oh, I, I can go down that path versus another. And what's what's hard to kind of delineate is what has staying power versus what doesn't. Because you, you reference that these agencies aren't necessarily um, technology companies, but a tech-enabled agency is going to be really competitive if they're you know using Jarvis and ChatGPT in their content manage, uh, content marketing or these other you know, kind of very tech-forward tools. Mm -hmm. That's probably why they'd be stealing market share or having a competitive advantage. So it's just really interesting. You know, we're not seeing how those businesses exit. We're seeing how they maybe get built or how the like online courses sold. Be like, here's how I do it. Mm -hmm. but we're not actually seeing like is the enterprise value there that makes this a worthy pursuit if everyone else is also piling in? Well, it is if they can, well, certainly if they've turned profitable. If you've got a tech company or a SaaS company, how they're valued is very different than a service firm. The To your point, though, also, Aaron, that we were talking about service firms can turn, technology can turn pretty quickly as well. Yeah. All the more reason if you're on the right track to think about catching out or monetizing. Yeah. The, um, but it also goes back to what you said about really understanding the, the industry, getting knowledgeable about how firms or companies like yours are valued. Because that tech company, even if they're not yet profitable, could be trading on a multiple of revenue, not necessarily earnings. Yeah. Some of so, them don't even have earnings. <laughs> yes. Now, you've got to be able to demonstrate how you're going to get profitable, and there has to be growth. People aren't normal, unless there's just... Somebody wants your IP for different reasons. Yeah, but 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 again, that that will highlight the importance of balancing. You're trying to run a company, profitability, all that's involved with that. At the same time, putting some time and energy into how am I going to monetize that, and that takes energy. I mean, you've got to get out there. You've got to talk to, you know, groups like ours and, and others. You, you need to get educated by. I mean, there's endless information on how companies are trading and selling. And many owners, what we were talking about, they'll reach that stage, and it's usually not too far after they feel that I've got something solid. They start thinking about, even if it's a few years out, how will this turn into personal wealth? So the the big company you exited, PT Services Group, that you said was generating those leads for um, advisors who are helping mm -hmm. with exit strategies and business succession. What was it, you know, after twelve years, that was the catalyst for you to say? I need to, I need to, you know, wipe my hands and get out of this business. That company was a challenge to run. It was very labor intensive. We had close to 60 people. It did not fit for me what I wanted to do. And, and I also realized that it did not have the kind of potential that could really scale. So I was thankful I was able to craft my own exit plan, but it wasn't the exit celebration payday. It was a great experience for me to see we hate to look back and say experience is what I got when I didn't get complete, 
completely what I wanted, but it still was a successful exit, but it was not the kind of potential that could have really um, carried me to another venture. You know, going back with the wisdom that you have now from seeing, you know, over a hundred other um, transactions in this space, like what, what's the advice you would have given to a younger David? The emphasis on profitability, if I go back, we were focused on growth. Our margins were just okay. Without strong margins, that limits the people that will really put forth good offers. What's a good margin for an agency? Well, for a service firm, because much of our work is agencies. You know, we certainly help other service firms or tech companies, but yeah. service firms, the goal when if you really want to sell is to try to get your net income as a percentage of your top line over 20%. Okay. And that's after a fair market salary for the owner or owners. Right. And that's where you're throwing off cash flow. If you can get north of 25% or 30, all, all the better. So going back to my experience, I had a company that was labor intensive. To scale it was a challenge and our margins were just okay. In terms of driving profitability, I guess, you know, raising prices can always help if that's possible with your existing mm -hmm. client base, but finding other value drivers that aren't necessarily a high gross margin to implement. So if there could have been like an add-on to the existing mm -hmm. services that was relatively high margin that could have potentially expanded it and made you more attractive in the future. Yes, those are good examples. Um, is there a particular buyer uh, in this area that you think has a really interesting strategy as you see the type of firms that they acquire or how it all fits together like from from that strategy standpoint because you know that's that's basically the other choice here right if we want to say there's agencies that are doing three five ten million in revenue one path is okay go find a strategic that wants to you know incorporate you the other is like let's go you know hoover up our balance sheet get our capital in order and start acquiring to grow so if someone were to go that opposite direction what do you see strategically those firms doing that's you know at least in your mind a good strategy to grow and increase value that was your question yep the the concept of acquisitions then there's also an aqua hire so you've got strategic acquisitions on one end aqua hires are smaller groups where you acquire typically one to five people that come with a block of business so those are two different strategies. Okay. On, on the acquisition side, it sounds great, Aaron, on paper in a spreadsheet. You know, we're doing X million. Let's go out and buy a company and, and then we'll put it together and, you know, one plus one. And we do a lot of buy side work. I mean, we've, over the past 13 years, we've represented numerous clients trying to increase enterprise value with acquisitions. What I've so come to appreciate, it is a very big challenge to do it profitably, to find the right deal at the right price. Because if you start reaching out to, to potential sellers, you don't know if they're even thinking about selling, and then you're coming after them. So one, you've got to get the economics right. You've got to find an owner that's motivated to sell for the right reasons. And then you have to integrate the cultures and so forth. So we've witnessed some successes on acquisitions my advice would be if you're going to explore that route, it's a big time commitment. It's not, let's go out and see if we can just buy one company. You're going to have to date many sued potential sellers. You're going to have to have a team to assess them. You're going to have to plan for the integration. Now, the leverage could be huge, though, if it's the right acquisition, but it is a true commitment. It's expensive because you've got to buy the company. There's going to be capital and debt involved. You've got to pay advisory groups to find them and negotiate it. You have to weigh that against other new business 
channels for growth. Yeah. Which everyone knows it's a challenge growing organically. If you own a service firm, many people have had bad experiences trying to hire a salesperson. Just to weigh the acquisitions against the others, there's pros and cons. Is there anyone doing it really well, though? There are companies that have just grown at tremendous levels through acquisitions. I mean, there's a number of large, they almost look like holding companies because it's not that, I mean, they've had 10, 15, 20 acquisitions and they've become significant. That's their growth strategy. Yeah. They typically come with a set model. They're out there talking to almost every agency that might fit the profile. Sellers know of them because they're contacted frequently. And and basically, at, the, at its core, if you're in services, you're trying to create replicability, right? If you have seven lawyers, you want them all to put up the same standard of contract or the same standard of deal, regardless of which of those seven you get. If it's marketing, you know, I want I want my, my campaign to be as good if it's team A, team B, or team C. That replicability is part of what you're in pursuit of as a leader. And so what I'm hearing then is if it's the folks that are, you know, up to 15 or 20 acquisitions, they now have you know, not that every deal is exactly the same, but they have an ability to replicate, okay, you know, here's how we finance it, here's how we negotiate it, here's how we integrate it once it's acquired, exactly. here's our standard terms that we need for alignment, and here's how we create synergies and you know, benefits of scale once those companies are incorporated. And they, that's a very different type of buyer than someone's like, eh, let's just buy one company, see what happens. That's probably, it sounds like more of a recipe for trouble. I agree on both fronts. Okay. I mean, it's like anything, you know, if, if they've done it, they get knowledgeable. They've done a few. That's saying once you've done one, you're an expert. But, <laughs> but, but, but the acquisitions, it's, it, it can be appealing. And you don't have to set out that you're going to do so many multiple ones. It could be, you know, our plan is to look to do one acquisition every two years. And in order to accomplish that, they'd have to most likely have meaningful conversations with six to ten companies where they're really into discussions to try to find that right fit where the economics, the perceived value on both sides line up. And then you're always looking to, to, to leverage. How are you going to finance that transaction? Banks are very supportive of acquisitions. I mean, certainly if the buyer has to have a good balance sheet and good credit and so forth, if the valuation is right, banks have been very supportive of acquisition strategies. You have to spend time to find the right lending sources. And I'm guessing that a lot of the acquisitions that you're managing, the like total sum isn't a public figure, right? Like it's usually a private transaction. So the total valuation in those type of terms aren't shared publicly. Is that correct? Correct. So the incentive there is different than let's say the, you know, professional sports contracts or the VC deals where, you know, the agents are very excited to tout, hey, I got my client, you know, this amount of money for this amount of years. Isn't that fantastic? Even if they maybe exaggerate it slightly or, you know, assume every, you know, possible positive outcome. And then the venture, there's a similar thing where you're almost trying to communicate to the market, look, we've got a big balance sheet. We just got this A plus investor. We're legit, you know, don't enter our market, whatever you want to try to signal to people. But in the case of these private transactions, what is the incentive or, or what is the reason that often these numbers remain private as opposed to being publicly disclosed? Well, certainly that once somebody has sold the business, he or she's not going to disclose that unless, I mean, just to their whomever. 
their world. So there's really no incentive, as you can appreciate, for, for the seller. The, the M&A advisory group, they have to protect confidentiality. Yeah. So we certainly would never disclose specifics of a transaction. What we are able to disclose are averages. We could disclose terms without disclosing who the buyer was. Not terms, but if we're talking to a similar type of company, we could say, we know companies like yours have sold for a multiple of X with Y percent paid at closing. And it's it's really back to talking to people in the industry to get as much information as you can to know what your company's worth and what to expect. And you'll get at closing, what the terms may look like. But th there's also, there's certain economic factors that will drive what your company's worth. And even if that information's not out there, it's for example, on our team, we have a CPA who does our, what we call market valuation analysis. Economics and the risk reward will help flag or put a range on what that company's worth. If you've got a company that's not growing that much, you know, just three to 5% per year, nobody's gonna pay a real high multiple. Otherwise, they, they won't get their money back quickly enough. Yeah. You know, so a service firm that's just, you know, a little bit flat or growing, if their margins are okay, might only trade at four to five times earnings. If a company's growing or their unique value proposition is strategic, that's why somebody might pay six, seven, eight, or more times earnings slash EBITDA. And typically the right financial analysis will, will tell you what that company's worth. And that's where I come back to, if you get multiple offers, usually the marketplace will dictate based on a return of capital. If somebody's gonna invest in a small, closely held company, they're, they're gonna want a return on their money of at least 20%, 25%. And the balance sheet, the income statements will help dictate where does that company fall in terms of value. David, this has been very educational. Mm -hmm. I wanna to aim towards our, our final questions here. Uh, but before I ask those, is there anything else you're hoping to share today, share today that I didn't give you a chance to? No, we touched on some key points. I think I'm, I'm glad we touched on starting early, appreciating what are the value drivers that will dictate the overall enterprise of that value. Uh, well, if folks want to learn more about you, about your firm, Tobin Leff, mergers, acquisitions in this space, uh, what digital coordinates can we drive people towards if they want to learn more? Well, I so appreciate it. I mean, certainly our website, TobinLeff.com. I have five partners. Any one of us would welcome the opportunity to talk about the M&A marketplace or somebody's business if they reach out to us. So that would be the best place. I mean, we're all on LinkedIn. We'll link, we'll link to the website, the LinkedIn profile, all that good stuff in the show notes. You can find it in the app where you're probably listening to this right now or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before I let you go, David, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Well, my challenge has two components to it, but they tie together. Bring it. We've been talking about starting with the end in mind. So okay. one action is to really do vision planning, try to crystallize what does that exit plan look like. Regardless if you just started, go to the end in mind, envision what that could look like for you. The second part of it is make sure you have a mission, not just a mission statement, a mission that truly ties to that vision of your exit planning. Take that cause, that mission, and direct that right to this vision that you have when you want to monetize your company.
That's my challenge. Vision, mission, connected. And it's going to make decision-making easier if you know where you're actually going. You're not trying to aim in every direction. You know where you're headed, and you can align your decisions that way. Yes. Beautiful. David, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming Thank on the you podcast. for having me. We That's just went a, deep uh, with David Tobin. Uh, Hope you're out there. Has a fantastic uh, day. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the end of my interview with David. If you enjoyed it and want to hear more about mergers and acquisitions in the agency space, then go check out our past conversation with Amanda Dixon from Barney. She is building a marketplace for agencies to be bought and sold and talks in great detail about the types of buyers that are out there and which one might be best for you. Go check it out.